Roe v. Wade is dead, struck down by a radical conservative Supreme Court which has moved much faster than most observers thought that it would. Unceremoniously tossing aside 50 years of legal precedent, the court has upended America's politics, its constitution and society. Tens of millions of American women, my daughter among them, now enjoy fewer rights than their grandmothers did, and this will have immediate serious consequences. Women will die, women will probably be dead within days or weeks as a result of seeking unsafe procedures now that abortion clinics are closing across red states and purple states in America. Rape victims and victims of incest will be forced to carry babies to term to give birth to the child of their rapist. Other women will be forced to travel thousands of miles to obtain medical procedures which may be necessary to save their lives. Countless others will give birth to children who they do not want, upending their lives, upending their education, diminishing their economic opportunities, and denying them the opportunity to choose the size and composition of their own family, and to have control over the most intimate aspects of their own bodies. This right which has been taken away was recognised by the Supreme Court in an earlier era as one which predates the Bill of Rights, which predates the Constitution, an ancient inalienable right which has now been taken away from America's women with no sure idea of when it will return. This is America Explained, I'm your host Andy Gawthorpe, and in today's episode we're going to be unpacking this decision and picking through what it means for the future of America. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. I want to start by talking about the legal theory that was behind this decision and the legal theory that this court seems now to be applying to the cases that come before it. And it's really important to understand that, not just to understand this decision on abortion, but also to understand what this court might do in the future. The Supreme Court majority in this case said that there is no right to abortion according to the Constitution because the right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the history and tradition of the United States. And this idea comes from something that's called originalism. Originalism is this idea in American law that the Constitution has to be read according to how it would have been understood at the time that it was written. So rather than saying that the Constitution is a document that each generation interprets differently and understands differently depending on their own context and what's changed in society, originalism says basically that if the founders, the the framers of the Constitution, did not explicitly say that they meant to give people a particular right, then that right cannot be inferred from the Constitution. So the argument is that because, uh, you know, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion, it doesn't say anything about the right to an abortion, that basically that right cannot be considered grounded in the Constitution and deeply rooted in the history and the traditions of the United States. Now, there's all sorts of kind of just problems and logical fallacies with this point of view. I mean, just to take one to begin with, the idea that originalism should be the way that we interpret the Constitution is just really, really retrograde, and it's just obviously not a principle by which a modern society can operate. So just to take one example here, at the founding of the United States, when the Constitution was written, 
women were not considered to be people. They weren't considered to be citizens in the same way that men are. So women couldn't vote. Women were often subject to something called coverture, which basically meant that they didn't have a legal personality of their own. That once they married a man, their husband represented them. They didn't have their own standing in, in law or society. And it's clear that over time, since the since the Constitution was written, we have come to see women very differently as equal citizens under the law, as, as, as equal human beings to men. But if we were just to rely on what the Constitution says and what was meant by the Constitution when it was written, then we would not understand women as having really any rights in society. How can any modern society run like that? Or how can you justify running any modern society like that? And if you apply this kind of originalist logic to other areas of life, then you realize just how far back in time the US could be dragged by this kind of logic. So for instance, during the 1930s, there were a series of really high profile Supreme Court cases during the time that Franklin Roosevelt, who was president at the time, was trying to establish the New Deal, this new set of social programs covering things like social security, unemployment insurance, the regulation of businesses. And well, guess what? The Constitution doesn't say anything about social security. It doesn't say anything about working conditions. So at the time, this very conservative Supreme Court in the 1930s applied a similar originalist logic to these cases and said, well, America can't have pensions provided by the government. It can't have the regulation of child labor. It can't have regulation of the other areas of the economy because the Constitution doesn't provide for that. And this this was vanquished. This point of view was vanquished in the 1930s. It, it you know the vanquishing of this came to form the basis for much of the modern American state, which regulates and enables the running of the most dynamic economy in the world. But if you apply this originalist logic, then are we going to roll that back? Are we going to roll back? gay marriage, which is something the Constitution doesn't say anything about? Are we going to roll back the right to contraception? Are we going to roll back the Supreme Court cases which made it illegal to ban interracial marriages, something that many states were doing up until the 1960s? And actually, in, in his opinion in this case, it was an opinion that wasn't joined by the other conservative justices. But Justice Clarence Thomas said that indeed, Actually, we should be looking at rolling back some of these other rights, like gay marriage, like contraception. He didn't mention um, interracial marriage, although I, I, the, the, the logic of his position seems to suggest that it would apply to that as well. So this is a really radical, scary doctrine with the potential to wreak massive changes on American society. The other thing, though, that, that makes it so strange and just really reveals the pure power that's at play here. So the Supreme Court often, you know, the way it operates is that justices are required to come up with convoluted legal constitutional reasoning to justify what they want to do. But actually, yeah, I'm really of the view that so much of this is just a raw exercise of power that the majority can come up with reasons and excuses to do what they want to do. 
And this is made really clear when you look at this abortion ruling, and especially if you place it alongside a ruling that came out the day before, which expanded gun rights, made gun control more difficult across the country. And the problem that's revealed by making this comparison is that actually the justices just do not know history. They actually know very little, it seems, about what the Constitution meant at the time of the founding. They use history in very ahistorical ways, just kind of cherry-picking examples and quotes that help them to support their own case. They're, they're not professional historians. They don't have PhDs. Certainly the 20-year-old clerks that work for them who are freshly minted from law school programs which don't involve much study of history do not know this history. And this just becomes really, really clear when you you figure out that actually, so in the abortion case, they for some reason completely ignored the fact that at the time of America's founding, abortion was legal under common law until what was known as quickening. Quickening is when a woman can first feel the baby start to move around within her tummy for the first time. Now, that's something that only the, the pregnant woman could actually report was happening or not happening. So this gave an awful lot of power, an awful lot of ability for women to obtain abortions during the first few months of pregnancy. But the Supreme Court completely ignored that. It completely ignored the fact that actually at the time of the founding, abortions were happening all the time before this moment that was called quickening. And instead, they picked as their example the aftermath of the Civil War. They picked the Reconstruction era at the time that certain amendments to the Constitution were passed, which are now said to confer the constitutional right to abortion. And they said, oh, well, at this time, many states had laws outlawing abortion, so, so it's okay that we do it today, because clearly this right to an abortion is not deeply grounded in the history and the traditions of the United States. But actually it is. It goes all the way back to the founding. When, conversely, they, they decided the gun rights case, they chose to take the moment of the founding as when they started history. So in the abortion case, American history apparently begins after the Civil War, but in the gun rights case, it apparently begins at the founding of the country. And, and even then, in the gun rights case, they actually completely don't actually do a serious historical analysis of how the founders thought about gun rights, because it's very, very clear that they thought about gun rights as been something that was to do with a well-regulated militia. That's in the Constitution, it says a well-regulated militia. It doesn't say some random guy can keep a rifle under his coat when he goes down to the market. So there's just so many logical and practical problems with this point of view. And it shows really that what we're actually dealing with here is very much just a raw exercise of judicial power. This becomes really scary when we consider the fact that so many people on the right and, and just the judges themselves and conservative lawyers and commentators are now piping up to say, it's completely ridiculous to argue that just because abortion is gone, we're also going to come for gay marriage. We're also going to come for these other rights that are also grounded in the same fundamental right to privacy that abortion proponents claim that the right to an abortion derives from. So you have this whole set of, of, of rights that, that come from this right to privacy. The, the majority on the court says, well, the right to privacy doesn't exist. 
But just trust us, that doesn't mean that we're also going to get rid of gay marriage. It doesn't mean that we're also going to get rid of the right to contraception. But they're just, you know, asking us to take their word that they won't consistently apply their own logic to these other cases, which seems very, very strange. If they truly, you know, if they believe in their own case, if their case is strong enough to allow abortion to be outlawed, then there seems absolutely no logical reason why that shouldn't apply to these other rights as well, to these other areas. So they're really just asking us to, to take their word on this, and, and there's no reason why we should. It seems very, very clear that they are going to come for these other rights. And, you know, I, I listen to a lot of conservative commentators, I consume a lot of conservative media, and they're already talking about this. Elected Republicans might not yet be talking about getting rid of gay marriage, but if you listen to conservative legal commentators, if you listen to people who are tapped into the views of the religious right, the grassroots of the religious right, they absolutely are talking about these things, and they are going to want to see movement on that from the elected officials and from these judges. So this is not over yet. This radical approach that the Supreme Court is taking, in my view, is absolutely going to lead them to chip away more and more at these fundamental rights. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Another thing that that I'd like to just briefly talk about is the fact that so sometimes you hear and and this is kind of I think become one of the big talking points that's used on the right to try to tamp down anger over what's just happened. They often say, well, okay, actually, we haven't taken away the right to an abortion. We haven't done anything too radical here. All we've done is send this decision back to the states. So the states will decide democratically whether they want an abortion law, whether they don't want an abortion law, do they want to outlaw it, do they just want to regulate it, do they want to be relatively permissive. And that means that actually all that's really been done here is that democracy has had a great victory because now the people get to decide the sort of abortion regime that they want to live under. Now, this is just really, really erroneous in my opinion. And the reason for that is because we're not just dealing with some petty political issue here, like zoning regulations in the city, or like whether we fund the state national, the state parks or not. We're dealing with a fundamental right, a fundamental right that women have enjoyed for 50 years. Now, if just imagine if we were to say, oh, well, we've decided that slavery is no longer illegal under the Constitution and the states can now decide what kind of slavery regime they want to live under, would we view that as a victory for democracy, as somehow some advance in people's rights? We would say no, absolutely not, because the the right, the so-called right to own a human being is fundamentally incompatible with the American Constitution and the principles of liberalism. We should think about abortion the same way. Forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy to term when she does not want to do so is, is, a, is a contravention of her fundamental rights. So it's not a democratic victory. It's enabling the suppression of people's rights. And that's why this decision was so wrong. 
The final thing I, I want to talk about a little bit is that so there's been some a lot of discussion here. What does this mean for politics? What does it mean for the Democrats? What does it mean for the Republicans? My kind of top line on this whole issue is that it's just hard to tell right now how this is going to shake out. We're entering now, I, I really believe, a fundamentally different era of American politics. It might not be, it's not going to be completely and utterly different to the era that preceded it, but it is going to be in some ways different. It is in some ways going to see changes for, for both parties. There's a few issues that people are talking about here already. So one of them is that there's this kind of fantasy that, again, you see some more moderate conservative commentators floating, that suddenly the Republican Party is now going to decide that it's really, really pro-supporting mothers and supporting children. Now, this argument stems from this fundamental problem that Republicans have and, and, and something that, again, makes what they've done here so so wrong and so destructive, that the states that are now going to have the most restrictive abortion regimes, the ones that are most likely to force women to carry pregnancies that they do not want to term and to have those children, are also the states that tend to do the least to support mothers and families. So they're states without good maternity leave, without good provision for flexible working conditions, without an adequate social safety net and a welfare state that supports mothers and families. So some Republicans are saying, well, now that we've decided to force women to have children that they don't want, maybe we're also going to get serious about supporting those women and supporting their children. And they, they see, I think, uh, at least a very small number of Republicans see the possibility of some kind of new political coalition where they become the people like the, the party of families and the party of mothers, the, the same mothers that they're forcing to have children that they don't want. Now, this is just, you know, this is complete bullshit. This is not going to happen. There's absolutely no way that Republicans are suddenly going to become in favor of a welfare state and in, in favor of family policy just because of this abortion decision. It, the, the, the center of American politics when it comes to issues like welfare is just so far to the right of where it is in Europe. You only have to consider the fact that even the Democrats were not able to get 50 votes together in the Senate to extend the child tax credit for families earlier this year. So even the Democrats can't get together a majority for a substantial expansion of the welfare state in a way that's going to help families. There's no way the Republicans are suddenly going to do this. The other parts of the Republican coalition, particularly the pro-business element, is just not going to get behind a redistribution of wealth in a way that helps families and helps mothers. This is just kind of a fantasy that, that's been floated right now, but there's no way that's going to happen. So you're absolutely going to see Republicans continuing to stick to this anti-welfare politics, you know, this kind of politics that implies that anyone who needs welfare must have made loads of bad personal decisions, they must be a drug addict, or they must be an alcoholic, or it's all the fault of feckless fathers who don't stand by their wives, so why should we you know, enable them to do that and help them do that? This, there's no way that the, the, the main kind of themes of American anti-welfare politics are going to change as a result of this decision. These women will just be abandoned and, and not helped by the same people who are forcing them to get into this situation that they don't want to be in. When One thing I will say, though, is that I do think that this issue is going to become really tricky for Republicans now. And the reason for that is that because the Republican coalition has been just kind of held together partly by the fact that opposition to abortion 
was not something that had actual consequences. So if you wanted to be part of a conservative movement, if you wanted to be a conservative Republican congressman or presidential candidate or, or governor candidate, you needed to say that you were opposed to abortion. But because Roe v. Wade still existed, you were kind of shielded from the consequences of that. You couldn't actually get elected and pass an abortion ban. You couldn't actually get elected and pass a ban on gay marriage because the, this constitutional right to privacy was still respected. Now that that's gone, you're going to see, I think, a lot of tensions within the Republican coalition. People who are really seriously committed to imposing this kind of Christian or what they claim to be Christian set of values on their fellow Americans are going to be pushing hard and fast for abortion bans. They're going to be pushing hard and fast for taking this further, tackling issues like gay marriage, uh, pornography, other really big cultural hot button issues that they want to see change on, that, that they want to be able to impose their views on the rest of society. And other Republican politicians are, are going to realize that actually this is a real vote loser. This isn't good for them. In many cases, of course, it, it might work in Louisiana or Alabama, but somewhere like Ohio or Michigan or Nevada and Arizona, these swing states, there is suddenly going to be a lot of tension within that GOP coalition where the religious zealots are pulling in one direction and the people who want to win elections are pulling in another direction. This could, I think, be really destructive for the GOP. It's, it's one reason why I think a lot of Republican elected officials, politicians, seemed less than thrilled when this decision was handed down, although they claimed that this is something they've been working for for a long time. So I would encourage you to keep your eye on that tension and that issue, see how it plays out in the midterms, see how it plays out in primary battles that happen with, you know, within the Republican Party, and particularly 2024 as well. Donald Trump has already tried somewhat to distance himself from this decision, doesn't want to be seen too strongly associated with it. And, and this is for the reason I think that I'm outlying, that he realizes it's really going to be difficult for him with certain constituencies. I just want to close by saying something else, and this is about the Democrats, and that's that this is really a once-in-a-generation challenge and also, in a perverse way, opportunity for Democrats. Now, I don't mean the opportunity in the sense that it's a good thing that this happened, but I just mean that it's now necessary for Democrats to really galvanize their base supporters, but also other people, swing voters, non-voters, people that aren't already committed Democrats but are very worried about this decision, and to mobilize that societal force to win elections. And I think it's a challenge more than an opportunity because if the Democrats aren't able to capitalize on this moment, if they aren't able to capitalize on the fact that fundamental rights have now been taken away from Americans and translate that into electoral victories, then it's time to start wondering what is the point of the Democratic Party and what is going to provide the breaking force on this descent into a religious dystopia that America currently seems to be on. The Democrats really, really need to rise to this moment and show that there are consequences for taking away the rights of Americans, that there's consequences for this kind of attempt to radically reorient American society. Because if they don't do that, 
then that's just going to be taken by the other side as a license. And it's going to be taken as a sign that they can essentially do what they want. And they will be able to continue to manipulate America's flawed democracy in order to keep power and to win elections. So the Democrats really, really need to rise to this moment. The stakes are enormously high. And we're just going to have to wait to see if they can do that or not as the midterms approach and as 2024 approaches. So those were just some some thoughts that I wanted to get out there on, on this topic. I hope that you found this interesting. We're going to be talking about this a lot more in the future. We've already done, I think, one or two previous episodes about abortion, something that I try to cover on this show a lot. I'm going to continue doing that into the future. So I hope that you'll keep tuning in, you keep downloading and enjoying these episodes. Please tell a friend about America Explained if you know someone who would find it interesting. That really helps us grow. We've grown a lot over the last couple of months, which has been great to see. And I'm I'm really wanting to push that even higher. So please get the word out there by sharing on social media, telling a friend, sharing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks very much. And I look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.